to C3 Church Hepburn Heights. We believe Jesus Christ gives life to the full and we are called to live it and share it. We pray you enjoy this message today. So I'm reading Acts 2, 22 to 36 from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Men of Israel, listen to these words. This Jesus, the Nazarene, was a man pointed out to you by God with miracles, wonders and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope because you will not leave me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the paths of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. Brothers, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing this in advance, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not left in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. God has resurrected this Jesus, We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, Let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Thank you, Andrew. Good morning. Last week, Pastor M was truly exceptional. Thank you. In launching this series by focusing on the significance of Jesus' life for all of humanity. What does Jesus' life have to do with me? Everything. (laughs) Ah, really? Already? Ah. I had no problems recording this online. And now this. Jesus' life as fully human and fully divine rewrites our story from within and is the good news that we're all longing for. Don't we need good news? But today we turn to his death. And you might say, but you're a week early, Ben. Well, we've got the cross up, so... <laughs> good Friday's not till next week, but our desire is that the entire week leading into Good Friday, and this is Palm Sunday, Jesus entering Jerusalem, entering the pathway to his death, that this whole week would be framed with a focus on the death of Jesus from the very beginning. That we would, would sit in the reality, the significance of it, for longer than just a one-hour service. That we would let it sink deep into who we are 
so that God can come and do the work that he wants to do, that work of renewal. The part of the sermon delivered by the Apostle Peter that we'll be focusing on today is verse 23 of Acts 2. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. Jesus was killed. He was murdered. Jesus died. And death is confronting, isn't it? We can tell by the silence in this room. I remember wrestling with death, the reality of death in my early teens, many nights lying in bed, kind of trying to understand my mortality and sobbing. I would sob because I was so fearful. I was scared to death of death that one day I was going to breathe my last and I was no longer going to exist. Death confronted me when my nan, who lived with us for over 20 years and was like a second mum to me when she died after a few years of, of a battle with dementia. Death shocked me when I went hunting with Walter and Anthony in Jigalong for the first time and a number of kangaroos and bullock were shot and killed to, to eat. That was confronting. Death was so confronting when I conducted my first funeral. And you could feel and, and sense the deep grief and sadness like a, a thick blanket filling the room and taking my breath away. Death is confronting for all of us in our various experiences, many much more frequent and shocking than the ones that I've just read. As we read the, the daily COVID graphic and we see that there is a line with the title, Deaths Recorded Yesterday, and then there's a number. That's confronting. As we see the graphic images of war in, in Ukraine, bodies wrapped in plastic, and rugs, and whatever can be found to wrap up a body strewn on the side of the road, that's confronting. So why is death so confronting? Why do we find it so confronting? Well, it's the end. It's the whole finality of it all. It's the whole idea of life being extinguished from a previously living creature. It's also because our culture in the West isn't well established with meaning-laced ritual concerning death. We're not exposed to the realities of death like other cultures. Non-Western cultures with a, more of a focus on communal living, they tend to have meaning and ritual around death much more established and a key part of life. And if we think about the time of Jesus, death was much more visible, much more real, and much more a regular part of life. Life expectancy in the Roman Empire at the time was 33. A high infant mortality rate, the relatively low view of and value on, on human life, and the frequency of war obviously contributed to this. And death by crucifixion, it was very visible, right? Right? A very visible and visual deterrent of the empire to keep the people in check. So the death on a cross of a renegade man with a Messiah complex was not actually out of the ordinary. So it is, is somewhat confusing and confronting for 
you and I today when a cornerstone of the Christian faith is actually a death. The death of Jesus on the cross. For, for many, this is too confronting. It, it, it's, it's too uncomfortable to swallow. C.S. Lewis understood this when he wrote, if you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. <laughs> but it's into the discomfort that we head today. And we do it together. And we do it as disciples, as followers, as learners. And we do it humbly. We also do it knowing that death is not the end of this very real story. Let's read the first part of verse 23. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, God had something to do with the death of Jesus. It was a part of his plan and God knew it would happen. Sorry, what? Are you serious? Let's unpack this. What is God's plan? God's heart, his, his purpose, his plan is to bring all of what was originally a good creation that enjoyed intimate relationship with its creator, bring it all back into that place to restore, to reconcile, to, to make new, to unify creator and creation, God and humanity, heavenly and earthly kingdoms under the sovereign rule and reign of the one true King, Yahweh, the great I am. To do this, there were some obstacles in the way. There were some obstacles. Have you heard of them? Sin, evil, injustice, hatred, death. These, these obstacles would need to be challenged in order for this plan to be fulfilled. Creation was in the, in the grip of this, this, this very present reality. The grip was tight, seemingly unable to be loosened. And God's people, the Israelites, they knew that through their regular seasons of suffering, exile, punishment, essentially evil having its way in their worlds, that God, at the right time, through His mercy and by His power, would one day return to right the wrongs. The Jewish people were looking for a Saviour, a Messiah, but a certain type of Messiah. Jesus was not what they were expecting. <laughs> But in a shocking, an amazing way, Jesus was and is the Messiah promised and longed for. The eternal Son coming as a human, Jesus, God incarnate, living, dying, rising again. That is the ultimate evil-destroying event, the supreme and eternal life-giving moment, the greatest of good news for us all, the fulfillment of God's plan to restore, to reconcile His creation with Himself, the Creator. So why is this plan necessary? Well, the sin of humanity gave way to imprisonment to evil and inevitable end in death. Sin stained the image of God in humanity and you and I and is slowly draining the rest of creation of the vibrant colour it once had. Humanity is in a state of helplessness, like being stuck in quicksand. The harder we try, the more we sink into our own depravity and brokenness. We're captured we're pinned down by sin and we need rescue. 
what we have to offer God, what, all our efforts, they're, they're not good enough. Our sacrifice is not holy and pure enough. In fact, it's the opposite. You and I as humans, we're in debt and we need a ransom to be paid for our freedom. And we stand in guilt, shame and condemnation and await the due penalty of our sin, which is death. And the scary thing is that today, many of us either don't know this reality or we don't accept it. But we need help. Desperately. That is why this plan is necessary. So how did the death of Jesus fulfill this plan? The death of Jesus on the cross is the atoning work that brought about the chance for reconciliation between God and man. And and I'm just going to outline some helpful metaphors, some pictures of Jesus' atoning death from Scripture and the development of Orthodox theology by the church over the years. It's really important that we don't, uh, we don't kind of focus just on one metaphor because there are strengths and weaknesses of each one, but it's, it's really important that we're looking at all four in totality. Number one, the war victory metaphor. In our captured state, Pinned down by sin and needing rescue. Jesus came and he waged war on sin, evil and death, not by brute strength and force, but by surrendering himself to all that could be thrown at him. N.T. Wright, the first of a few N.T. Wright quotes for this morning. And they're not short quotes either. Yay! They were awesome though. Jesus came to believe that the only way one could defeat death itself and thereby launch the new creation for which Israel and the world had longed was to take on death itself. Like David taking on Goliath in mortal combat, trusting that Israel's God, the creator of life itself, would enable victory to be won. And since death was seen in the Scriptures as the ultimate result of human rebellion against God and failure to obey Him, if death were to be defeated, then idolatry, rebellion, disobedience and sin would be defeated along with it. Death, like a great ugly giant, would do its worst and pour out its full weight upon Him and the Creator God would overcome it, showing it up as a defeated enemy. That's the first metaphor. The second metaphor is a sacrifice metaphor. Although our sacrifices, although our efforts are not enough, they're not acceptable because of our sin. The sacrifice of Jesus's life, the shedding of his innocent blood as the perfect sinless human being is an acceptable offering to God. Sacrifice metaphor. The third one is the ransom metaphor. In our debt, Jesus paid for our freedom with his death. Mark 10, 45, Jesus himself says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The ransom metaphor. And lastly, the legal substitute metaphor. In our guilt, we're all guilty of sin. Awaiting the penalty. The penalty of sin is death. Jesus is the perfect substitute taking on our sin, our guilt, and the penalty through his death, thus satisfying the legal requirements of the law and essentially bringing justice, the legal substitute metaphor. Now, in all these metaphors of the atonement, what underpins them is one thing, and that's God's motivation for what he did. 
Why did the creator become a part of his creation? Why did he get in on the inside of the story? Why did the life giver voluntarily suffer and allow death to to snuff his life out? Why did the one who is all-powerful willingly receive on him the wages of all evil, sin, and hatred of humanity in the spirit world? Was it anger? Was he angry? I can think of better ways to respond. (laughs) Indifference? Nah. Vengeance? I don't know. Despair? Was he kind of fed up? Regret? They, they all seem incongruent, these motivations for what Jesus did. Can I, can I posit another thought, another possible reason? Love. Love. Not a love that you and I understand in society, in our limited thinking, but a love that is purer than any, any love that we've ever experienced. A love that is so, so merciful and so, so forgiving, yet at the same time so just and steadfast against evil. You see, human love either flicks from one to the other, merciful and forgiving or just and steadfast against evil. The reason God's love is so pure is because he can hold the two tensions perfectly. N.T. Wright, again, God's implacable. I've never said implacable from the stage, so I'll say it again. God's implacable rejection of evil is the natural overflowing of his creative love. The death of Jesus was the climax of God's love. His must, mercy and justice coming together. Mustus, if you put them together. Mustard. What, kind of, what, do, you, what do you think of when, you, when I say mustard? Do you think of the whole grain mustard or English mustard? Anyway. Uh, his mercy and justice coming together in perfect unity. Jesus' death on the cross was simply an act of selfless, others-focused love. The Apostle Paul in Romans 5, 6 to 11 For while we were still helpless, at the appointed moment, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than then, since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, we will be saved through him from wrath. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have now received this reconciliation through him. It was God's plan for Jesus to die for the sin of the world. The divine nature of Christ was what could take on and exhaust the powers of evil, sin and death in order for us to be reconciled and forgiven. Let's go to the second part of this scripture of verse 23. Because this shows that the plan also involved real and raw humanity. You use lawless people to nail him to a cross and to kill him. The death of Jesus is dripping in humanity. Now, God's plan was not an otherworldly, Star Wars-type, zapping evil out of existence. Pew, pew, pew. Would have made for a better movie, 
Just, just do pew. Just make that noise to someone. Pew, pew. Pew, pew. It wasn't like that. Jesus did not overcome sin, evil, and death through some clever detour. Kind of comes out the other side. Hey, I didn't have to do all that. There was nothing sterile, nothing easy, nothing neatly packaged about this plan. Jesus embraced all that being a fallen human in a fallen world entails, except that he never sinned. We know that to be a human in a fallen world is to face injustice, right? To be human is to face lawlessness within and without. To be a human is to face an enemy, to face someone who would, who would want to take life away from us so that we're just merely existing. In, Jesus embraced all that. He embraced it in the most publicly shocking and shameful way. He willingly and obediently, willingly and obediently suffered, hung on that cross in the place of every lawless man and every lawless woman, though his life is the only life to uphold the law completely. And as he's hanging on that cross, people are walking past. People saw. It happened. He died. He suffered. And what did people do? They pointed and they jeered. They scoffed and they taunted. But embracing sin, embracing evil and justice and lawlessness and false accusations, backstabbing, blaming, torture, meddling wood on his body and his own murder, Jesus fully identified with us all, every part of each one of us. And in in embracing all that Jesus embraced on the cross, God embraced us. He embraced his sons and daughters. He embraced his creation, fallen but loved, sinful but forgivable, broken but able to be restored and made brand new. And it was meant to be that way. So what does the death of Jesus mean for us? How are we going, by the way? We good? Is this this okay? I know it's okay. This is my greatest privilege. So what does the death of Jesus mean for us? Well, it either means nothing, and we really just need to forget about it and move on, seriously, or it means absolutely everything. It can't mean just a little bit. It can't mean just a little bit. It can't mean just a Sunday. Oh, I've got to go on. I've got to move on. The death of Jesus, the cross, means that in regard to our worth, we're deeply loved and valued as human beings. That he was willing to do 
what He did for us, our worth and our value, every human being essential worth and value. In regards to our brokenness and helplessness through sin, the death of Jesus means that we don't have to be defeated or defined by it anymore. Jesus has made a way for our freedom, for our forgiveness and for a hope-filled future. That sin that so easily entangles, that, that sin that dominates our thinking, that sin that, that we, we try to want, run away from, but like Paul, the very thing that we don't want to do, we end up doing. That sin, every sin that, that we've committed that we ever will commit, every sin has been defeated on the cross, dealt with. You're not defined by it anymore. You're not defeated by it anymore. There is hope. You can overcome it. You can beat it. There is victory in that area. And I'm so thankful that time after time, in area after area of my life, I've, I've seen that victory take place in my world. And in regards to facing injustice and shame, Jesus showed that there is another way other than hiding from it or fighting fire with fire. Jesus won by losing his life. N.T. Wright, again. Fighting the battle with the enemy's weapons meant that the one, that one had already lost it in principle and would soon lose it and lose it terribly in practice. Jesus determined that it was his task and role, his vocation as Israel's representative to lose the battle on Israel's behalf. He showed, he showed that there was another way. There's another way to face injustice and shame. There's another way to face suffering. There's another way. There's a better way. There's Jesus' way. Band, why don't you come up? So what is our response what is our response to all this? Three responses this week. And I want you to grab one of these. Grab a hold of one of these and, 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 and step it out this week. We, re, we respond in repentance, number one. Let's take advantage of the offer given us. Of the way made for us through the sacrifice of Jesus. Let's, let's own and render our sin to God. Let's, let's make a decision to turn away from it and turn to Him. That's what repentance means, to turn away, to, to change our mind. That we would turn away and turn to God. Because it's in that, that place of coming before God in humility that, that, that His forgiveness comes. And my goodness. <laughs> my goodness. To not only know you're forgiven, but feel you're forgiven. To experience that the, the, the slate is wiped clean. To encounter that experience in, in, in heart, mind and body. It's something else. It's something else. And as we receive His forgiveness, His mercy comes and His love comes and we can step out in freedom. Because God then empowers us. He not only frees us, but then He empowers us to live right so that we never find ourselves in chains again. 
And that's what the repentance journey is. And so why don't you start that repentance journey today if you haven't already? Or pick it up again. It might just be a simple prayer that you pray, acknowledging your sin and and receiving Jesus' forgiveness. Maybe you could ask a friend or a pastor to come alongside you and help you on that repentance journey. I'm going to be here at the end of the service, just down here. And if anyone wants to come and it would be an honour for me to be a part of that repentance journey that you are on. And then we turn these repentance moments into a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle of repentance. There's, there's no limit on how many times we, we repent, how many times we receive His forgiveness. We can make this a lifestyle. This is the way we live humbly before our God. And we, we acknowledge things quickly and we move into relationship with Him. We respond in repentance. Secondly, we respond with thankfulness. Are you telling me that this sin that has defined me for so long, how I, I feel this state of guilt and condemnation all the time, are you telling me that, I've been, that there's a chance for me to be forgiven of that? And not only that, but, but now there's, there's freedom for me to be able to live the way I know I've been created and called to live. Are you serious? There, there's an opportunity. There's a chance. What's my response? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I couldn't do that. I was in quicksand. There's no way out for me. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. But it means that we have to focus not on the bad, the terrible, the things that are always going wrong for us. We focus on what he's done for us. Thankfulness flows. Thank you, Jesus. And lastly, we respond in solidarity. Just as we're unified in our sin and brokenness, every human, broken, fallen, so too are we unified in what Jesus did by giving his life. He died for us all. Not just Christians, not just those who rocked up to church today. From our most loved family member to our most loathed fellow employee. From our most... Why are you laughing, Pastor Genevieve? I'm a fellow employee. Wow. That took a turn. We got supervision this week. <laughs> From our most cherished friend to our most hate-spitting enemy. Solidarity. Last quote from N.C. Wright, but it's also with Michael Bird because this is a different book. The New Testament in its world. The cross is the surest, truest, and deepest window on the very heart and character of the living and loving God. The more we learn about the cross in all its historical and theological dimensions, the more we discover about the one in whose image we are made, and hence our own vocation to be the cross-bearing people. That's you. The people in whose lives and service the living God is made known. And when, therefore, we speak of shaping our world, we do not, we dare not, simply treat the cross as the thing that saves us personally, but which can be discarded when we get on with the job. The task of shaping our world is best understood as the redemptive task of bringing the achievement of the cross to bear on the world 
in undertaking that task, the methods as well as the message must be cross-shaped from start to finish. When we look into the eyes of someone in our street, someone in our workplace, in our place of study, on the side of the road at the freeway exit ramp, let us see the cross. Let us see these people all in need of a saviour, all loved by God, all worthy of dignity and honour, all died for by Jesus. And so how can we sacrifice for those in our worlds? How can we prefer them? How can we show them God's love this week? Think about it and step it out. Let's pray. Jesus, in light of your death, in light of your cross, may repentance flow. May thankfulness erupt. And may we stand in solidarity with each other and give our lives for each other this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for joining us here on our podcast. We encourage you to let this word further help you live and share the life to the full that Jesus gives. If you want to check out more about our upcoming events, service times, locations, or to give online, go to c3hh.com.au.